Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, a warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday, the 12th of September. You can find this program on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On X, formerly known as Twitter, the program can be found at Money Talk R3. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Biden ended a two-day visit to Hanoi Monday with the signing of a comprehensive strategic partnership with Vietnam. The partnership with Washington is the highest level of diplomatic ties extended by Vietnam. The White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said it reflects the leading role that Vietnam will play in our growing network work of partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region as we look to the future. Several billions of dollars in business deals and partnerships were agreed during the two-day visit. Credit in China expanded more than expected in August as lenders boosted loans and the government accelerated the sale of bonds. Aggregate financing to the economy, which is a broad measure of new credit, was triple the record low in July, boosted by growth in new loans and lending through shadow banking. Bloomberg News reported Monday that HSBC is set to raise mortgage rates for borrowers in Hong Kong, adding pressure on the city's slumping property market. The lender is raising the cap on home loans linked to the Hong Kong interbank offered rates by 50 basis points, pushing rates on new loans to 4.125% from 3.625%, effective September the 18th. Banks last raised the cap in 2022 by 25 basis points. The European Commission Monday lowered its growth forecast for the EU economy in 2023 and 2024 and raised its predictions for inflation just days before the European Central Bank meets on Thursday to consider its next move on interest rates. The European economy is forecast to grow by just 0.8% in 2023 and 1.4% in 2024. The Commission expects inflation to remain slightly higher than anticipated in 2024 at 3.2%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Christopher Lee, partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. That's where you'll also find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news from across Asia. On Wall Street, stocks rose ahead of key U.S. inflation data later this week as markets watch for signs that inflation is cooling towards the Fed's 2% target. The S&P 500 gained 0.7% to 4,488. The Dow rose 87 points, or a third of a percent, to 34,664, aided by a 1.2% rise in Walt Disney. Tech shares were the outperformers, helping the Nasdaq to rally by 1.1% to 13,920. Bullish Sentiment Monday was helped by a report in the Wall Street Journal saying there was a consensus amongst the Federal Reserve not to raise rates at next week's meeting. The report also cited a policy policy shift in which members are seeing less urgency to add another rate hike later this year as inflation data has been improving. The US dollar fell by the most in two months after China and Japan signalled a willingness to take steps that will bolster their currencies, triggering a sharp jump in the yuan and the yen. The US dollar index fell half a percent to 104.55 following eight straight weeks of gains up until Friday. 
The Japanese yen strengthened as much as 1.1% to 146.12 per dollar on Monday after Bank of Japan Governor Kazuo Ueda said in an interview it's possible the central bank will have enough information and data by the year end to judge if wages will continue to rise. He said the bank will seek a quiet exit from its ultra-dovish monetary policy. China escalated its defence of the yuan by delivering a strong verbal warning to speculators and fixing the daily reference rate much higher than expected. The offshore yuan appreciated past 7.3 renminbi per dollar Monday, rebounding sharply from the lowest level since offshore trading was introduced in 2010 as China's central bank set a daily midpoint rate with the strongest bias on record. Offshore yuan surged 0.8% to 7.3014 renminbi. The onshore yuan, which hit a 16-year low last week, rebounded 0.8% to 7.2847. The PBOC said it will take action to correct one-sided moves in the market whenever it's needed and they're confident in keeping the yuan at a reasonably stable level. And the central bank added we will resolutely correct one-sided speculation. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index lost 106 points or 0.6%, trading at 18,096 at the close. The index was dragged lower by steep declines in property stocks. The Hang Seng Properties Index, a gauge of Hong Kong's top developers, fell 3.3% on reports that HSBC was planning to increase mortgage rates by 50 basis points. The tech index dropped 0.2%. It was impacted by shares of Alibaba, which fell 3% after the company said in a surprise move that outgoing CEO Daniel Zhang will step down as chairman and CEO of its cloud business. And the Hang Seng expected to open about 0.2% firmer this morning at around 18,140, according to futures markets. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Tuesday morning guests. I'm joined by, first of all, Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter. And also with us, Christopher Lee, senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. Morning to you, Chris. Good morning, Peter. And as always, on a Tuesday morning, Monday evening in uh, Washington, D.C., we find our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Now, the G20 over the weekend, India hosted world leaders at the G20 summit in New Delhi. Attendees included U.S. President Joe Biden and French President Emmanuel Macron, but not Xi Jinping or Russian President Vladimir Putin, who both skipped the forum of leading nations. Host nation India pulled off a huge surprise by announcing that agreement on a final communique had been reached, despite the geopolitical frictions ahead of the gathering. Mark, I suppose, as G20 meetings go, um, this one was pretty good, wasn't it, in terms of at least agreeing some concrete outcomes on things like expanding the World Bank and the IMF to provide relief to poorer nations. Um, It also agreed on uh, a few other substantial issues. So maybe a a diplomatic coup for India here. Yeah, definitely a coup for India and a a boost to uh, Prime Minister Modi's uh, election campaign. As, as well. And and so it's better than expected. You know, compared when G20 began or around the time of the global financial crisis, it really did have a major role to play. And the first uh, two or three meetings were pretty important. Since then, it's sort of ebbed and flowed. This helps a little bit. And of course, there there's 
there's some promising aspects of it, but the, also there's a lack of, of some con concrete commitments as well on things like climate change and and uh, biofuels and other areas. Mm, they never seem to be able to agree on what steps to take on climate change, do they? They always agree that well, something well, needs to be done, but... It's a consensus, and to reach, you know, the Ukraine statement was a good example of that consensus. Mm. That, you know, it's, it, was, it, was, it was criticized by some as not being strong enough, but it was probably the best they could get. And again, the U.S. is trying to develop its relationship with India, so the U.S. was going to support that as, as well as, as, a, as a compromise, let's mm. put it this way. So, yeah, uh, definitely, definitely positive and some interesting, interesting developments. I'm sure we're going to talk in detail about them, especially in the infrastructure area for the Middle East and in and, and Europe to some extent. Yeah. Chris, what's this telling mm -hmm. us about U.S.-India relations? Mm -hmm. They seem to be becoming more strategic, don't they, and, and more important uh, to really both sides. Well, U.S.-India has always been pretty strategic and, you know, just look at the IT industry, right? So there has always been a, a very close uh, uh, working relationship. I do, uh, I think, uh, agree with you, um, Peter, that this is the G20 meeting. So a lot is really about the top 20 countries uh, economically speaking so i would uh, i would not be disappointed that uh, xi jinping did not attend because uh, he sent his number 2 uh, li chang who mm. actually has an mba degree right so uh, from hong kong poly u so we're having the right people at the right meetings uh, talking about the right economic issues so i also share an element of uh, optimism with mark and uh, i hope this is a uh, good uh, trajectory that we're seeing going into the end of the year. Barry, you've attended Peter, some of these Peter, summits before, haven't you? Sorry, Mark. Mm -hmm. I, I just might, and I'll let Barry talk in a second, just might mention, though, that there was very little coverage of, of, the, of the Premier's participation in the, in the meeting. And in fact, I, I did an interview with, um, with the TV network yesterday. They didn't even, 10 minutes, they didn't even ask me about China, which mm. is sort of interesting. And anyway. Premier Li Jiang did meet with President Biden, which was also unreported, really, yeah. wasn't it? They had a meeting on the sidelines um, of, of the conference, but we don't really know what they discussed. No, no that's, that's exactly right. Like so many things that happen in your part of the world. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Look, that's I have right. a very... I have a very different take than, than my interlocutors here. I, I think it was not a failure, but certainly not much of a success. I think it was dominated by the absence of China. We knew that Putin and Russia would not come because he would, since India, I think, is a signatory to that um, tribunal, would, would have to be arrested. So he was never in, in line to attend, but Xi was. And I think his absence uh, really was a big void that the Indians and Americans tried to fill. And I think it's uh, very clear that the Americans are trying to catch up with the Chinese in terms of the Belt and Road with their own alternative. They're talking about the World Bank and the IMF, uh, not to give them more representation, but to at least do more lending. And I think that uh, this represents a downgrading of the G20 by China. Hmm. After all, this is, as the declaration even says, 29 pages, by the way, and at 37, if you want to include the, the annexes, that 29-page declaration says near the top that the G20 is the world's premier organization for economic cooperation. Janet Yellen, 
a treasury secretary, never attending summits. So, I mean, I would think the others in this club might be looking with raised eyebrows as to why she was there. But she says the G20 is a forum for solving global problems. That's really quite different. So I think the G20 is in transition. Uh, they've agreed to let another African in, the, the chairman of the African Union. But uh, I think it's a work in progress and not necessarily positive. Chris, do you agree that mm -hmm. um, it's downgraded by the fact that President Xi Jinping wasn't there? Well, it certainly wasn't good. And uh, I think Li Chiang does have the right resume, uh, Barry, to be at this uh, G20 meeting. I mean, as I said, uh, he's the only Chinese uh, leader that I know who has an MBA degree. I mean, everybody else is an engineer. So he has that uh, preparation. Again, he was educated here in Hong Kong at uh, Poly U. And so uh, it is the uh, G20 meeting more focus on economic issues. And so this is probably a good beginning that uh, some, I think, um, senior level Chinese uh, leaders would potentially attend the November APEC meeting in San Francisco. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, I am um, a bit sort of like uh, Mark Michelson that I'm more about the CEO summit, more of a business to business uh, type discussions. While I agree, I think, with many of you that there's centralization of uh, political power in Beijing, but I also see a lot of uh, economic decentralization. So the private sector, as uh, Peter had mentioned, has produ produced a lot of jobs, and also the growth is mostly coming from the private sector. You look at the stock market capitalization, most of the bigger cap companies now are from the private sectors. So having, I think, uh, this meeting attended by Li Chang, who is the number two from China, is a good start. It's a good, uh, I think, a beginning of a hopefully... I'm sure you've got a, a valid point there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's an economic specialist. So that's mm -hmm. a plus. But let's not forget, above mm -hmm. all, this is a club. Mm -hmm. And a club is the heads of state and government. Mm -hmm. So the club was not represented by its one of its principal members, leader. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to look askance at that. Secondly, look at the format of this. The Indians had invited, as is the habit of, of leaders in these rotating host summits, uh, mm -hmm. nine countries, and they sat around. They couldn't, they'd have to shout across the way if it weren't for screens and, and microphones. Mm -hmm. Uh, 30 odd members, I mean, you know, participants in the meeting, even the group photo was around the grave of, of, of Mahatma Gandhi. So you couldn't really identify who was in the photo. Uh, that's a that's unprecedented that they didn't stand for a group photo. So, I mean, I don't want to be sound cynical. Mm -hmm. I think the G20 is a very positive creation, but I'm not sure that this pushes that process forward. Mark, on a couple of specific issues, what do you make of this infrastructure plan to connect India, uh, Indian ports by railway through Middle East countries and then onto, onto Europe um, and, and hopefully cutting down on shipment times, on, on costs? How significant is that? Well, I think we have to see how it's implemented. Clearly, the Belt and Road was in mind when this was created. It's very interesting that the, m many of the signatories of this agreement are also the BRICS. The members of BRICS, so yeah, it's a, a very interesting connection. This is this is part of what's called the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, uh, which which the the U.S. has, and I think it shows again growing cooperation, strategic cooperation between the U.S. and India. But interesting to inv to involve many of the countries in the Gulf 
and even Israel as part of this as part of this agreement. So I think, you know, that's a positive development. Is it dramatic? Probably not. But at the same time, it's a it's at least an, an alternative or another option for countries who are in need of infrastructure and other assistance uh, to get it. And they they need it. So I don't think it's it's exactly uh, a rival to the Belt and Road, but it's uh, but it's an addition to the Belt and Road, I think. Oh, I think it clearly is a rival. I think we're seeing evidence here that the Americans and to a lesser extent, the Europeans are fighting back. You know, they're not going to let China dominate the development agenda in the world. And I think that's clear evidence. I, what you say, Mark, is true. I mean, this is a positive development. Okay. Yeah, well, I don't, I, I, what I, I don't think, I don't, I think it's meant to be a rival to the Belt and Road. I'm just not sure practically it's, it's going to be. I don't think it probably will be. Frankly, Belt and Road has enough problems, as we well know, <laughs> and they become very clear, especially in debt and in, in many of the projects that turned out to be uh, not successful at all. In fact, probably counterproductive. Chris, the, the other thing that was agreed was on, mm -hmm. on debt relief, wasn't it? Talking about reforming um, and expanding the roles of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund so that they can spend more on global mm. priorities. The U.S. is talking about expanding the World Bank's capacity by $25 billion. That could rise to $100 billion if other countries also participate. Mm -hmm. and, and the idea is to, to spend more on things like climate change, on mm. fighting um, pandemics. How, how significant is this? Because third world debt is a big issue, isn't mm -hmm. it? The World Bank estimates that uh, the poorest nations have annual debt servicing costs of over $60 billion of, to bilateral uh, creditors. Two-thirds of that is owed to China. Yeah, so I'm happy to see that, and that's a positive development as well, just uh, more relief and extending credit is uh, better than just uh, giving handouts uh, for free. I think we had this uh, debate a little bit earlier I, I think, you know, this is more disciplined way of uh, uh, helping the poor countries. Just like if your friend were in uh, financial distress, instead of just giving him free money, I think I would prefer to give my friend just a uh, free interest loan. But he has to pay back, right? So this is more responsible way of uh, helping your friend. And also, I believe a uh, longer term, there will be more benefits from um, having that uh, loan payback instead of just giving out the uh, uh, the free handouts that we talked about earlier. And as you see, I mean, this is also quite um, uh, quite the approach that the uh, Beijing government is uh, adopting in mainland China instead of just giving away free money like what Hong Kong government has done and some U.S., uh, I think, politicians have been promoting. The Chinese government has been extending credit, really, right? So giving out more loans and also uh, easing the credits and trying to give more borrowing. So I think this is in line with the uh, the, the globally responsible way of uh, helping poor nations. Okay. But again, it's part of the rivalry that, that Barry cited mm -hmm. as well, because mm -hmm. China is the major lender to a lot of these, mm -hmm. a lot of these countries, as you mentioned before, and this is, again, an alternative and, and maybe, uh, maybe one that, you know, they hope that they will take up and also part of the voice of the global south initiative that India India is trying to trying to grab this this crown, and you know felt that the uh, G20 was uh, made progress toward this uh, toward this objective. Mm -hmm. Indeed, Barry, this is the, the global South is becoming a big issue, isn't it? India and China vying with each other to be seen as leaders of the uh, of the so called global South. That's another aspect uh, of of this summit, isn't it? Well, it is, but. 
as our friend Stuart Allcraft likes to uh, observe, Russia is not in the global south. If you look at a globe, they're way in the north. China is not in the global south. India is not in the global south. So I think the term is, uh, I rather like developing countries. You know, what's wrong with that? That was the old term. But uh, yeah, they all want to be the leader of the global south, certainly India and China. And that's really what I saw in just reading, particularly the Indian media, on this New Delhi summit. It was clearly uh, no mention of China, really. It's just that, you know, India is the champion of the global south. Yeah. India is rising. Here's a huge extravaganza. India is coming, you know, and rising. That, that's a point. And I think that's I think it's a very good point that that Barry made. I was also wondering if the global south included Texas and Florida, but Louisiana. Well, we won't go into this. They're developing it, fast. <laughs> yeah, this rivalry is important, and I think it also the big other yeah. big news was BRICS, which we've we've talked about before. But here, the the two major countries are China and India, and they clearly are not only rivals; they don't get along very well. And uh, yeah, and you know, I think this this meeting probably underlined that. Let me ask the three of you about another country that's also growing in significance. Mm -hmm. That's uh, Vietnam. President Biden's mm -hmm. ended a two-day visit to Hanoi with the signing right. of a comprehensive strategic partnership uh, with Vietnam. Um, Mark, you and I are both old enough to remember the times, I think, in the <laughs> 1970s and the 1980s when uh, the US and Vietnam weren't even talking to each other. The US had sanctions on Vietnam for quite a long time, didn't it? This is quite a, quite a significant change, really. It, it's it's pretty dramatic, and I've spent a lot of time in Vietnam over the over the past twenty years. In fact, helped organize the maybe the first Independence Day Fourth of July party in uh, Hanoi since maybe nineteen fifty four, even before in the early nineties, before before relations were uh, were were formalized. So this you know symbolically, this is a big a, a big step forward, and it brought along companies too. You know, and there were deals, and especially uh, Boeing sold some planes, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and some of the tech companies were there. What they didn't mention, su surprisingly, was Intel, mm -hmm. which uh, which in 2006 put a billion dollars in Vietnam, way ahead of everyone else, uh, thinking that this was going to be the place that was going to develop, and looked at it as a with 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 young a young population, potentially skilled labor. Uh, potentially well-educated, many of them have been educated abroad and come back to Vietnam and so on. And that bet turned out to be pretty successful. And I think uh, we're following this, and this is now trending on to the uh, political side as well. So, you know, admittedly, it's symbolic. They also have a similar relationship with China and Russia, <laughs> as, <laughs> as we well know officially. But at the same time, uh, this is a step forward, I think, for Vietnam and and for the U.S. and its relationship with Vietnam, especially since the president was there. Are they doing this like as a counterbalance to their relations with yeah. China? Mm. I think they this will. is very, yeah, <laughs> this, this is very positive because Vietnam, as you said, uh, 50 years ago was the U.S. enemy, right? But then, you know, again, it is a uh, single party state. It's still a socialist country. Uh, but I don't think this is a political calculus here. I think this is, again, going back to uh, economics uh, discussion that we have been talking about since uh, we got online. I mean, I look at the World Bank figures and GDP per capita in Vietnam is about $4,000 in 2022. 
And uh, China is now up to like $12,000 now GDP per capita. So if there's a source where U.S. manufacturing companies can source a better and cheaper labor, right? Vietnam is definitely a, a key consideration. So uh, labor costs are going up in China. And so if you can find a place where 30% of your costs can be taken care of, right? That's a good uh, economic discussion. I think uh, also a good economic decision. So it's not just political. I think people can forget about the political nightmare since 50 years ago. I think there's a, a very strong economic argument why U.S. companies should partner with Vietnam. There, there are capacity problems in Vietnam. There, there, mm-hmm. there, there are labor problems. There's corruption. There are other situations that mm-hmm. have made some companies come to Vietnam, but also maybe mm-hmm. not expand as much as they wanted. But at the same time, it does have great promise. In relation with the U.S., it's interesting. President Biden went to visit memorial to John McCain. There's always been a tribute to John McCain in Hanoi at the old Hanoi Hilton, the old prison where where he was incarcerated for for all those years. It's an interesting relationship. So yes, hostility. Yes, they fought each other, but um, but that that uh, moderated very quickly among top Vietnamese officials, even even well before this, which I think surprised a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Barry, Vietnam is going to become a key um, key player in things like semiconductor supplies, global supply chains for the electronics sector for, for U.S. companies, isn't it? So um, the significance of Vietnam, it can't be underestimated. Well, that's true, Peter. But at the same time, there's not going to be big fabrication plants for semiconductors in Vietnam. It just doesn't have the infrastructure. It doesn't have the population base. It's not going to replace China. Uh, This is what uh, the Americans uh, uh, rather curiously call friend-shoring. I mean, the hostility that the Vietnamese have for the Chinese is palpable. You talk to these American tourists who expect to find hostility, and they say, my God, they've got signs all over Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City saying, welcome American. So, yeah, it's a good thing. But let's not forget, Joe Biden was there for less than 24 hours. So, you know, yeah, it's it's something. It's it's an attempt to, you know, diversify supply chains. And I think it is, as both Mark and Chris have said, it's very significant. Mm. So, symbolically, it's, I agree with Barry. Symbolically, it's important. But think of the iPhone. Yes, some of the, some of the, some of the manufacturing has been farmed out to other places, to, to India, Vietnam, to some extent, elsewhere. But is it going to stop? Is the majority stop going to be made in China? I don't think so. I think China is still going to be the center unless something really, really blows up. Vietnam's- that part I, I would agree because the scale issue, again, you know, Vietnam is a country with only 90-some million people, right? So China is still with 1.4 billion people with most of the uh, <laughs> Apple iPhone manufacturing facilities, you know, physically and also uh, professionally speaking. So uh, it's not going to replace, you know, anytime soon. Right. Economically, Vietnam, I mean, it's done well, hasn't it? Last year, it grew 8% its GDP, although it has slowed this year because it's also being impacted by the the slowdown in China. So its exports are also uh, falling as well. But nevertheless, Mark, uh, economically, um, Vietnam is is sort of leading the world, isn't it, in terms of GDP growth or one of the best performing nations anyway, globally? Yes, we're doing very well. We... we, uh we used to look at the ASEAN five in terms of economically. Now we look at the ASEAN six, and that that includes Vietnam, which is 
in some ways outperforming some of its rivals in ASEAN, although, as we pointed out, there are some some challenges there and, and weaknesses, and we'll see going forward. But of course, many of their other many of their other uh, uh, competitors among in ASEAN, which is a co- very competitive group, although there it is an association. Most of the members compete against each other, especially those that have, have uh, relatively advanced economies. Uh, that's that's going to be uh, that's going to be interesting as as we move on. But certainly, Vietnam has has outperformed in the past few years. Okay, let's switch our attention to the markets. A big feature uh, recently has been the strong dollar, although China and Japan have started to push back against that. Last week, the dollar surged to its best week since February. Uh, The US dollar index has risen for eight straight weeks. That's its longest streak of weekly gains since February 2015. Although yesterday, the US dollar fell by the most in two months after China and Japan signaled a willingness to take steps that are going to bolster their currencies, triggering a sharp jump in the yuan and the yen um chris first of all i'm I'm always a little bit surprised about this i would have thought japan and china should be delighted about their weak currencies i mean look what it's done in particularly in japan to uh, to the economy mm-hmm. it's helped boost uh, the economy and the markets yeah so i go back to that uh, political versus uh, economic uh, i think uh, issues right i mean at 146 yen to the dollar, and now renminbi is almost uh, 7.35 to the dollar now. I mean, yes, I know politically speaking, I mean, I might be a little bit worried. But again, as a businessman, I am not worried at all. I think this actually helps more uh, Chinese exports and also Japanese exports, right, to the United States. And so the average Americans can enjoy cheaper goods and also higher quality goods. And again, the business to business discussion is very important here. While I know the uh, the strength of the currency represents the strength of a nation in some aspect, but economically speaking, I mean, the domestic uh, economy in China is struggling, as we all know. So a lot of, uh, I think, uh, corporations need to rely on the good old exports, right, to really boost the uh, 2024 performance. So I'm not worried at all about the uh, currency depreciation of Chinese yen. I think it might be a good thing, even mm. for Americans. Yep, that's what that's what I would have thought. What, what do you think, yep. Mark? I mean, these these weak uh, weak currencies mm-hmm. are, are exactly what, mm-hmm. uh, if, like China, if you want to fight deflation, then this is the way to do it. Let your currency slide. Yeah, but but you know the Chinese are worried about the implications too. They don't want it. They don't want it continuing week they don't you know they want to they want to find a a, a a comfortable middle middle ground if they can and they're just they've they've lost they feel they've lost control of the currency at this point and you know it's going to affect capital outflows and and other other issues and uh, is it going to be harder to manage and i think that's one of the worries of course it does you know maybe makes them more competitive from from an export standpoint a lot of people would welcome this but i think the chinese government uh, would like to have a, a feel like they could manage it a little bit more successfully than they've been able to do uh recently Barry, I'm always amused when these uh, these uh, these slides are called speculative attacks by uh, the central banks <laughs> yeah, yeah, of Japan exactly. and China. They're not speculative at all, are they? There's a very good reason for it, and that's because U.S. yields are way way higher than Japanese and Chinese yeah. yields. So this is exactly yeah, what I you would expect answer- to happen. Yes, I think the answer to your question about the the dollar and dollar weakness or strength is strength is going to continue for the reason you just stated. I mean, U.S. rates are high. I don't think they're going to go higher. Some 
would say that. Perhaps Chris has a different view. But uh, high rates are here to stay in the States at least for the next 6 to 12 months. Uh, the United States economy is outperforming Europe. So the euro is going to remain relatively weak against the dollar. And I think, as Chris has as rather persuasively said, both China and Japan are, are happy with the current exchange rate. I know, Mark, you've got a different view. but So I think the dollar is going to stay strong despite all of our fundamental uh, balance of payments problems. There was an interesting article over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal by Nick Simmerus, who's known as the, the Fed whisperer because of his contacts within the Fed. He's basically saying that there's now consensus uh, that rates will be left on hold next week when the Fed meets. But also there's a shift now in, in Fed policy thinking that maybe now uh, the, the fight is not so much anymore um, against rising inflation. It's to make sure that the economy doesn't fall into recession. Well, I, I'm sure there is that discussion, but uh, it seems to me that we've got a transformative change in the United States economy. For the first time in at least two years, probably much longer, uh, 20 years, 20 years, I, I misspoke. I meant in 20 years, you've got a positive real interest rate. Mm -hmm. That means we're going to become a nation of savers again mm -hmm. because the inflation rate has been above the uh, rate of interest for a very long time. And now with the inflation rate down two thirds to just over three and interest rates on home mortgages up to seven, that means there's an incentive for savers. This mm -hmm. is an important transformative change. And I think the Fed will come under a lot of pressure from Congress and others to cut rates, but I hope they stand firm. Mm. You could almost argue that um, rates aren't yet high enough. If you've got economic growth at 3%, which is where it's looking like it may come out this quarter, plus inflation at 3%, that's 6%. Um, you know, Fed rates at five and a quarter may be still not high enough. Well, that could be. But at the same time, I mean, this is like uh, putting more uh, twigs on the camel's back. I mean, <laughs> at what point do you really crush the housing market? What point do you crush the credit card and the auto loan market? And uh, I, I think that we're just beginning to see the effects of the rate hikes that have gone on for 16 months. Do you think, Chris, that the PBOC and the Bank of mm -hmm. Japan could really um, stop the, uh, the, their currencies from weakening? Is, is this a, a forsaken battle? It's very, very hard. I mean, the currency markets, as we know, is always uh, bigger than the individual banks or central government and it's really the uh, the the markets that will determine right mm. the the exchange rate right so in global markets you've worked in global markets for many years peter we know that uh we cannot control the global markets mm. this is this is uh, basically a free um form of a currency exchange because the yen is freely tradable uh, and uh, I know the Chinese renminbi is not yet so they have a bit more control on renminbi but the yen is freely tradable. Mm. And, and it's at the moment it's significant that it's a lot of talk but not much action. I mean the Bank of Japan is talking about intervening but it hasn't done so uh, so far this year has it? The PBOC likewise giving out warnings to speculators um, trying to adjust things through the fixing but also at the same time uh, it's not going in and, and really doing an awful lot. Not much, not much. And uh, again, I mean, I echo what Barry said about the high US dollar interest rates. I think that's going to keep the dollar very, very strong in the foreseeable future. 
especially as uh, I think 2024 is uh, going to be an election year. So uh, I do think that uh, uh, the dollar will remain um, very, very uh, prominent. Mark, let me ask you about the Chinese economy. We've had some data, quite a lot of data over the last few days. We had credit data, which was better than expected. Credit in China expanded more than expected in August as uh, lenders boosted loans and the government accelerated the sale of bonds. We also had inflation data, uh, which showed deflationary pressures easing. Are you getting any sense at all that maybe uh, the Chinese economy has turned a corner now? There's a feeling that maybe the... The worst is over, at least for now. But, you know, there are always surprises. A part of part of the worry continues to be what we've talked before about economic long COVID, that the effect of, of on confidence in Chinese consumers. Barry was talking about saving. You may remember that the U.S. and, and China agreed a few years ago that the uh, China would would try to save less and the U.S. would try to save more. <laughs> yes. Well, well, maybe the U.S. is starting to do that, but China's not saving less. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and that's that's an, that's an indicator, I think, of what's happening. So, yeah, we we're forecasting that 2024 will be will be better for China, not spectacularly better, but certainly better for China as they start to uh, deal with some of the issues. But, you know, that's going to be affected by by factors outside of their control as well. So. It, it looks looks immediately promising, but um, but I think no guarantees at this point. Are, are these steps then that the Chinese government has announced to try and uh, stabilize the housing market, cut mortgage rates, cut down payments? Are, are those starting to have an effect? Is that one of the reasons why we're seeing the data improving? Is it down to these these measures? Let me, I should let some of the others comment on this, but let's. Some of our our companies are heavily involved with property are not convinced yet. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it probably has helped the numbers, but they're not convinced that they're strong enough, and they've gone far enough, and maybe that's very hard to do anyway to really improve the situation. And those that are in that market or are dependent on it for their businesses are are not are not feeling very uh, very confident these days. I have not seen uh, the uh, recovery of local property markets yet in yeah. China. Right? It's good that they have reduced the uh, down payment amount and also they have relaxed a lot of the rules. But again, I mean, the domestic consumption has yet to return. I mean, a lot of money is still not being spent. And it goes back to the point that I made earlier, uh, Peter. I think a lot of the Chinese corporates ought to focus on the export sector, right? So historically, that export sector has done very well for many uh, corporate, you know, corporations and their earnings. And at the moment, to take advantage of the weakening renminbi, they should be able to boost their sales and also earnings through more exports. Mm. Do you, are these measures then the government's the, the government stimulus measures? I, I use the term stimulus fairly loosely because they've been yeah. pretty piecemeal, haven't they? But nevertheless, are they starting to have an effect? I haven't seen much. Uh, I know the uh, the stock market has uh, not reacted yet. You know, to lower sort of like stamp duties and also all that stuff. And even Hong Kong is now struggling to uh, boost the uh, the transactional volume, right, on mm-hmm. Hong Kong market by uh, proposing you know some measures similar to what uh, what we have seen in China. But I think fundamentally we have to improve the corporate earnings by uh, selling more products overseas, that would fundamentally, I think, uh, boost the uh, the performance of uh, both financial markets and the local economy. Mm. 
Barry, Janet Yellen's been speaking about the uh, the Chinese economy while she was at the uh, the G20 summit. She seems fairly relaxed about it, uh, noting the slowdown, but basically saying the uh, the Chinese government and the PBOC has the tools um, to deal with it, and it's not really going to have an effect um, on the USA, although it, she said it will have a big effect on East Asian countries. Yeah, I think uh, Miss Yellen, first of all, has done an outstanding job as Treasury Secretary, just as Gina Raimondo has done a great job as Commerce Secretary. But uh, I think the Americans are very relaxed about what's happening in China. Uh, I think that if you look at the statements that are made by these officials, particularly Janet Yellen, uh, they say China's got room to expand. They've got room to boost credit. So they're not dictating or prescribing what the Chinese should do. But I think the discussions must include all of that. I think that uh, what we have to look for is some Chinese officials coming to Washington and some signals that the Chinese are not uh, overly anxious and angry at the Americans, because I sense that they must be. Mm. I mean, it's been very one-way traffic so far, hasn't it? Lots of American officials going over to Beijing, but no sign of anyone going back, although there are sort of rumours that maybe Anthony Blinken's going to meet with Wang Yi uh, in, in Washington sometime soon. And you look at the state media is, is really strong in stridently accusing the Americans of interfering in lots of different areas, whether it's human rights, Taiwan, South China Sea, etc. And they can probably look at what happened in New Delhi and also the president being in Vietnam and say these are not friendly uh, gestures. Mm. Mark, final thoughts from you. I mean, what more can the Chinese government do? What would you like to see them do, given that uh, Janet Yellen says they have plenty of tools available to them? What, what should they go and use? Well, I, I, you know, I think I think they'll do that. They'll, of of course, make some. Uh, they'll take measures to uh, to try to bolster the property market. We don't know how successfully, as as as, as Chris mentioned, um, if not lowering interest rates, at least at least at least making uh, making some sort of moves in that direction. But I think they're going to be very careful. Continue mm-hmm. to be careful because they they see implications of making those moves as well economically. So I think they're going to tread very carefully. Is that going to come back to bite them? I mean, it could. But at the same time, they have a lot of levers that they can push, as Janet Yellen said. Mm-hmm. And I, I and they've got some pretty good people that are managing the economy. So I sort of have similar confidence that Janet Yellen does in, <laughs> in the Chinese economy going forward. Not overconfident, but at the same time thinking that that eventually they're going to be able to uh, to manage their way through some of these issues. Chris, in one minute, what would you like to see the uh, the government do? I'd like to see the government sending more people to uh, San Francisco in uh, November. It is the uh, CEO uh, meetings, uh, APEC CEO meetings. I mean, to Barry's point, Secretary Yellen had gone to China. Secretary uh, Raimondo had gone to China. Blinken had gone to China. So I know there will be many Chinese CEOs going to San Francisco, and I think there will be also some uh, party leaders from Beijing heading to San Francisco as well. So that should be a good thing if they listen to Barry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they are. I'm sure thank they're you, hanging Chris. on his every word. <laughs> well, thank you all very much there. You heard Christopher Lee, who's senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments, Mark Michelson, who's chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. He's a Lewis's 
Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter. And that has a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guest will be Hao Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. And from the USA, Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence. And with a view from Japan, it's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk. 